Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. The best antidote to anxiety is action. We've won some battles, but we still have more work to do. Mm-hmm. Today's guest is a powerhouse activist who's been working for social justice and LGBTQ rights for the past five decades. One of my heroes, Tori Osborne. She talks to us about how she's organized her groups over the years and how we stay engaged as we transition from fighting Trump to building our collective power. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is is How We Win. It was fun to watch Biden win the presidency for the... 20th time or <laughs> again yeah yeah so the electoral college met from different states and um officially made joe biden the next president of the united states have you ever in your lifetime watched live stream of electors casting their ballots with actual bated breath and anxiety <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that I've ever done that. Is that what you were doing on Monday? I have to say I was a bit riveted. I mean, CNN was playing it live with just every now we're going in the next hour as if it's election night again. Uh, it was it was crazy and stupid and I couldn't pull myself away from it, sadly. But um, yeah. So for everybody across the country, except for one person and a few of his <laughs> followers, this sealed the deal. Even Moscow Mitch has now congratulated Biden and Harris, although I will say that he waited for Putin to acknowledge it before he did. So, yeah. Well, hopefully Trump will take this as a sign that he has no allies left in this fool's errand that he's been on. I, I, I don't think that he will. It remains to be seen how his denial will play out. Yeah, I mean his his end game is just to hold on to his supporters by continuing to peddle these lies and um and this posturing potentially for his next move if it's a media thing or you know I guess he sent out a a feeler to his supporters should he run again in 2024. God help us all. Um Hopefully he'll be in in jail. That's my hope. Barr has now resigned, who also should be in jail. Yeah, the attorney, Trump's attorney general. Trump's uh, lapdog attorney general. You know, I mean, it's just a lesson to all of the Republican enablers uh, and sycophants who continue to peddle in Trump's QAnon-fueled conspiracy theories. It doesn't matter what you do for this guy. You can literally... Put the kibosh on a special counsel investigation. You could tear gas protesters for a photo op for this guy. You can try to uh, squash investigations by having attorney generals removed, as he tried to do in New York. Trump is still going to throw you under the bus as soon as you do something that he doesn't like. Yeah, you said Barr resigned. I don't know that he resigned. Yeah, I mean, no, I know it, that I know that there's a letter of resignation, uh, but yeah. Barr didn't want to investigate Hunter Biden; those, you know, hot allegations, and um, 
uh, he didn't like that. So yeah. bye bar. You know, Trump's always been surrounded by reputable and uh, the best gr- grifter types. Um, <laughs> yeah. Only the best grifters. Meaning that, meaning that, like there were there were some people around him who knew what they were doing, but I think what we're going to see him leaning into are the other types, and you know, based on the reports out of Washington D.C. over the weekend, things got very wild, and I think that's the those are the people who are going to yeah. be behind Trump moving forward. Um, so I don't, I don't think he's going anywhere. But the most important thing is that he's, for the time being, and we have to make sure this continues, that his power is greatly diminished. Yes. The other big thing that's happening this week is um, the vaccine, the the coronavirus vaccine has started going out to frontline healthcare workers um, and will be going to um, people in nursing homes and high-risk people. This is really great news. I know that it's going to be a while before everyone gets it. And the effectiveness kind of depends on the majority of people in the country being willing to get the vaccine. Um, And I know it's being politicized. And I just want, as we're starting to talk about, oh, who's going to take the vaccine? Who's not going to take the vaccine? I just want to offer some context about... um, about vaccines. And I know that they're a hot button issue right now. Um, And I would just encourage people to be um, patient about the vaccines and to understand that um, not everyone in this country has a a great um, relationship with the government and healthcare. Um, Mm. And I'm not talking about anti-vaxxers who you know, conspiracy theories abound about that. And, you know, that's for another different podcast. Um, But I'll also say that our government, unfortunately, has a history of not being straightforward uh, when it comes to medical issues with poor people, with black people, with Latino people. And whenever I think about vaccine or government-provided health care, you know, I think about the Tuskegee experiment, which was a government-run 40-year brutal uh, medical experiment that targeted poor Black men in in Alabama. And a lot of suffering happened because of that. And I also think about the, um, you know, our government worked with the government of Guatemala to intentionally infect people with syphilis and and study the effects uh, of that on Latino people. And the Tuskegee experiment was the same thing, but um, for for Black people. And so there are going to be people who are going to say, I don't feel comfortable with this. And I totally get that. Mm -hmm. And I just want people out there to know the context. And I know we're in a very polarized moment in our country right now where if you don't see someone with a mask, you, you know, you jump on them and question them, or you see someone with a mask and you jump on them and call them a sheep or something. Um, (laughs) I think we got to be really careful about this and I'm going to take the vaccine, but I'm going to be very nervous about it. Mm. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the context behind that because uh, I have been hearing a lot from news reports about 
this division in in the vaccine. Obviously, it's really important that we get as many people the vaccine as possible worldwide. Also, of course, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I was really happy to hear the incoming administration talking about plans to help with other countries getting the vaccine to make sure that we um, we do our, our part as global leaders. You know, we didn't, didn't hear that much from the Trump administration. But uh, yeah, a, a lot of um, African-American communities and Latino communities have some deep-seated suspicions about taking anything that the government is handing out health-wise. And that's uh, a lot of really great context for why that is. Um, yeah. And, and I'm not speaking on behalf of all black people because we're not a monolith. And <laughs> Right. But I'll just tell you what some people might be thinking. It's always good to have compassion and, and thoughtfulness mm. about people's opinions and thoughts. You know, um, we need more of that. Instead of our knee-jerk um, judgments, we need to seek to understand why people have the views that they do. I That's very much, much more well said than I said it. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about your reasons for hope? Sure. Well, um, the first day of early voting was on Monday for the Georgia runoff. There was a record-shattering first day of early voting. It's going to be a very, very close race. Um, but just to see the amount of people showing up for this special election, which is, as you know, it's so hard to get people out for special elections right after a huge presidential that took all of the energy that everyone had right before the holidays and in the middle of the holidays. But the uh, in-person vote, uh, uh, the, for the first day was 168,000, which is up from 136,000, which was day one of the in-person vote in the general just back in November. You remember that. So more people showing up to vote in the first day than did on November in November. Or I guess it would have been in October, but you know, early voting. Way to go, Georgia voters, and way to go to all the volunteers and organizers getting out the vote there. Nice job. A lot of important, important work going into, we have, like Mitch McConnell, Moscow Mitch, we must get that gavel from him. We can do it with John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock, but, you know, we got a lot more work to do. Yes, and we have, have you know, a couple more weeks to, to get it done, so... Um, what about you? What's your reason for hope this week? Oh my gosh. Um, this year is almost over. Yeah. And it feels like the, as we're winding down and you're having like the traditional winding down, we've got Biden being official. We've got the vaccine. We're approaching a new year. I know that coronavirus wise, things have gotten very dark in a lot of places, but it really, for the first time this year, feels like we're turning a corner and mm. I may be speaking too soon. I'm not, I'm not going to say too much because I want to get to the <laughs> end of the year without <laughs> any more chaos, but hang in there, everybody. We're almost there. There's a lot of hope in there. I, uh, and I appreciate what you said about the the virus. Like I keep hearing the phrase, which I've used to the light at the end of the tunnel. But everyone, please, 
be careful, be safe. Don't gather in groups. I know our listeners are very conscientious about this, but wear your mask, wash your hands, continue to social distance because um, it's kind of like that. I don't know if it's a true statistic, but I've always heard it that most accidents occur within two miles of your own home. Because once you get close, like close to home, you sort of uh, oh, you let your guard down. You let your guard down. You're not paying attention as much because you're just going to pull right into your driveway, and that's where most of the accidents end up happening. You know, when we get to the end of this and you see the vaccine going out, it's it's easy to let our guards down. We can't do it though because we're in a really difficult spot right now, and uh, so. Let's continue to think of everyone who's at risk and save Mm -hmm. all the lives we can until we get full distribution of that vaccine. All right. So this week's to-do list, mask it up, wash your hands, volunteer in Georgia. That's it. Mask up, wash your hands, volunteer in Georgia. Those are your your three things to do. Of course, as always, uh, we have, just go to swingleft.org. Right on there, you'll find our Georgia resources. But don't wait. Give the gift this holiday season of a Democratic majority in the Senate. That's all I want for Christmas. All right. Well, then your wife and daughter have nothing more to buy, I guess. They have some work to do. (laughs) They just have some phone calls to make. Um, Okay. (laughs) But before you start dialing for Georgia, listen to this next interview because it is going to inspire your volunteerism, I'm sure. Tori Osborne has guided some of the nation's most effective nonprofits as they tackle tremendous challenges, including the AIDS crisis, LGBTQ rights, and economic justice. Tori was executive director of the Liberty Hill Foundation for Environmental Justice and of the LA LGBT Center at the height of the AIDS epidemic, as well as serving at the helm of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force in Washington, D.C., Tori, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. You betcha. Glad to be here, Steve. As I said in the intro, you've been in this fight for five decades. How did you first get involved as an activist? Let's see. The short answer is I'm a child (laughs) of the 60s, and it was, you know, it was magnetic. I mean, my first issue, I'm a little too young to have been active in the civil rights movement, but I watched it on TV and it inspired me. And I had friends who went down to register from white suburbs like I lived in outside of Philadelphia, who went down to register black voters as part of Freedom Summer in 1964. And that was when, and and I really wanted to go only, I was only 13. So my dad was like, (laughs) no way. But that was the beginning of my awakening was the civil rights movement. But my first activism was really the anti-Vietnam War movement. Like so many other people, I was swept up in fighting against. So, you know, my first march in 1966, my first protest was against the war in Vietnam. Mm. And then it kind of went on, from there. It's hard to think of this today, but in those days, in the 60s and 70s, because of course the 60s didn't end in the the end of the 60s, not if you were not if you were a woman or a person of color or gay or lesbian, the movements really flowered into the 70s and through the 70s. And so I would say that 
you know, it's been a lifelong thing. And, and the last thing I'll say is that one of my, my generation's, frankly, gift to the future was we developed the nonprofit sector to kind of house our dreams. So we would protest. And then over time, we built these community-based organizations and nonprofit service organizations, advocacy, battered women's shelters, Chicano art centers. I mean, we built a way. It wasn't a great living. <laughs> we didn't have a lot of retirement and they, you know, they weren't the best jobs ever, but at least you can make a living making change. So mm. then I went on and, and was executive director for four organizations that were all about either aid services or uh, social justice. Wow. So when HRC was running for president, you mobilized a group of people to drive to swing states and knock on doors for her. That group has continued to get out the vote and fundraise for candidates ever since, having a huge impact on Congressional Senate and our recent presidential campaign. How did you first mobilize them? And uh, more importantly, how have you kept them engaged for so long? Well, there's two parts to this, and I want to give credit to the Obama campaign in 08, because that was the first presidential campaign that I actually quit. I was a deputy mayor in Antonio Villaraigosa's. I had a nice office in City Hall, and I quit so that I could become a volunteer on the Obama campaign. And it was such, it was the first time as a longtime sort of social movement person, person who, you know, believed in building the kind of movements that would change people's hearts and minds on different issues, particularly the LGBT issue was kind of where I built my leadership chops. But but that campaign in 08 was the first time that I'd ever seen an electoral campaign have the energy and the dynamism and the momentum of a social movement. So I got magnetized to it. And there's a lot I could say about that. But I took a, my first group of volunteers to Vegas to door knock for Obama in 08. And then again in 2012, by then I'm you know back doing professional work and you know, not volunteering. Mm -hmm. And then when Hillary ran in 2016, did the same thing. Um, I did a phone bank out of my house for six weeks. And, and um, we had instead of I think there were 80 people for Obama, and um, we had 162 people who came to Vegas for Hillary. Wow. So those people wanted to continue after she lost the electoral vote. And that was what became Team, team TO, which is what it had been called in 08 and 12 and 16 in Vegas, became Team TO Resist and Rise. Now we're actually going to be changing our name to just to the brand that we use for our events, Making Ways for Democracy, because mm. the time for resistance is kind of over. But how have I sustained that? I'll tell you, it has been not easy and a lot of work. And I will tell you that it's been lessons that I've learned in every social movement that I've been active in that has taught me either negative lessons or positive lessons. So the first one is don't try to do it all yourself. So yeah. I have an incredible team of 10 people. There's now, I think, 11 who we call ourselves the COG, the core organizing group. We meet monthly. We plan the meetings. Other people are active in the meetings besides me. It's all volunteer, by the way. There's no paid right. staff anywhere to be seen. I mean, this is completely volunteer. I believe that one of the things is we have focused 
I want to say I love all my resistance. I call them my resistor siblings, mm -hmm. but a lot of them try to do everything. They do down ballot. They do U.S. Senate. They do presidential. They do everything. We really focused on, we believe that action is the antidote to despair and anger. So we kept people focused. We did door knocking in 2018. I mean, back in pre-COVID, right? right? And, and we just focused on 48 and 25. And we started door knocking with Sea change We partnered with Karen Bass's group with Sea change mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we started door knocking in March of 2017, way before Katie Hill or Harley Ruda were the candidates, right? Yeah, so, I remember that first sea change canvas. Yep, yeah, in March of 2017. So my, my point is that we really focused on canvassing and on grassroots fundraising, and we focused on two congressional districts. We didn't, I mean, we would have loved to have door knocked for Gil Cisneros or for Katie Porter, or, you know, for other candidates, but we, we just focused. We knew what we could do. We were having... We had like 100 people, 75 to 80 people every month were gathering. We were doing these events for fundraising. So we didn't try to do too much. And that is a lesson yeah. that I have learned through organizing. Too often, people want to do everything. It's a great point because even with Swing Left, which is, you know, a, a now very large national organization, we get a lot of people asking us, are you going to work on this thing or why aren't you working over here? And, and um, you know, I mean, the answer is, of course, we want to win all these important elections everywhere, but you do have finite resources. You have a certain number of people. You have a certain amount of money that you can uh, use. And, um, and so you have to prioritize, like, where you're going to be the most effective. And, it's and tough. where do your people want to, you know, your volunteer, if you're volunteer base, like we are, you have to kind of go with the flow. So some, so it's a combination of leading people and educating them and organizing them and mobilizing them toward a particular goal and making the case so that mm -hmm. you actually have followers doing it. Right. So Katie and Harley and, you know, those two districts in 2000 in 2018. Right. But then our fundraising, we did a big fundraiser for Biden. We did a fundraiser for Mark Kelly. Uh, we did three fundraisers for Sea Change, actually, for Karen Bass's group, because we really wanted to build capacity for her pack. But I think it's a combination of kind of listening to your people and leading your people. And mm. if you're volunteer based now, Right. You know, herding cats, uh, mobilizing volunteers is not always fun and it's not always <laughs> easy. Uh, I'm used to being to staff based or, you know, leading. I've run nonprofits. That's what my professional right. work has been until recently. Right. And now I'm in government. But it's really very different. And um, but I, but and then the other thing that I was going to say is. We really, really promoted self-care. We have meditations at every meeting. So our meetings became kind of community building. We, did, we were a Trump-free zone. We had meetings every single month for four years. I don't think we mentioned his name more than three times in those 35 meetings. And, wow. and that was purposeful. We yeah. were trying to create a space where people would be less uptight, less stressed, less angry, less triggered, because he was 
is, was, I love that past tense. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, but, but so I think there was an intentionality to community building, to self-care, um, as well as to action in the field that involved as, you know, lots and lots of people way outside the people that come to our monthly meetings. Yeah, that's, that's great. Building that community that that's something that really has been painful during the pandemic because we saw so many new people, myself included, jumping in for the midterms, you know, early 2017, as you said, starting in March, knocking on doors up in CA 25 and building that community with each other, catching some of that energy of being in a campaign office and, and all that. And, and we had even more people stepping up in the presidential, brand new volunteers for the first time who, you know, we were doing virtual events. So we didn't have that same sense of energy. We tried to replicate it as best we could, but, you know, that, that was a loss. And, and I hope because, like you said, that uh, part of working with volunteers is making sure they have a good experience and they catch what you caught when you were uh, a kid growing up in the 60s is the the spirit of the movement and and how uh, important it is to be part of that and to be a citizen and do this work you know, and keep doing this work. So. Well, one of the mistakes that most movements make um, is they don't realize how it's a long-term project. There's movement moments. So we just had a Black Lives Matter movement moment, as it were, back in uh, the summer. Mm -hmm. And there's different times of you know, like incredible street activity and uh, and conversation everywhere about X or Y issue. But the truth is, you got to be in it for the long term. And in order to do that, you can't burn yourself out and you can't burn out your volunteers or your leadership base for sure. And so it's got to be kind of like somebody uses the analogy of the chorus or the choir where, you know, they hold a note for a really long time, but each individual person isn't holding that note. They're taking breaths and they're taking turns sharing the note. And I think that too often people just go and go and go and go, and then they burn out and then they don't want to have anything to do with politics or with campaigns for a while. And who blames them? Burnout is tough. Yeah. And I say kudos to you also. You've been great at bringing local leaders together, helping build coalitions with uh, activists like yourself who have been doing it for decades um, with the California Democratic Party and with the newer grassroots organizations and bringing everyone together so we can share this load together. Um, and I think that's been a really important part of how we've organized over the last four years. You said something earlier about um, changing your name from Resist and Rise to what was the previous one again? So it'll be Making Ways for Democracy. That'll be, we have the logo already. We have the you know, the name. So the organization will become Making Waves for Democracy. So how do you think, because I've been thinking about this too. I We had um, a messaging uh, expert. I don't know if you're familiar with her work and not Shinkura Sario, uh, who's brilliant. And um, she was saying very rightly that the resistance needs to now learn how to be in power and how to own their power. And I think there's a lot of people who are very attached to being the resistance, right? How do you think that transition is going to work? Well, I've dealt with this throughout my life. I mean, honestly, sometimes, I mean, I am 70 years old. I've been around a long time. So 
the way that I see it is in every social movement, including the resistance, this group of newly woke people who have formed thousands of organizations, some of them have bigger names like Swing Left or Indivisible or Sister District, and some of them are just pop-up groups like mine. But there's a network, a new network across the country since 2016. And its identity is in resisting Trump and Trumpism. So the trick is, how do you resist Trumpism in the sense that how do you continue to fight for democracy against oligarchy and fascism or whatever words you want to use against anti-autocracy, let's see, at least autocracy. All of those apply in my mind. All of those apply, (laughs) right. And people have different politics. But so in every social movement, I've seen a group of people who get identity out of fighting. There is are always people who get their own personal identity or their group's identity out of fighting against power. To me, especially as I've gotten older, I'll tell you, I want us to learn that power is neutral and that we we want to have power. We want more power. We want to distribute it more fairly. We want it to not be concentrated in the hands of the 1% or the corporate overlords. So I, I call it cling, like addiction to the margins. There is a slice of people in every progressive social movement that want to cling to the margins, that want to be powerless, Mm-hmm. that see their identities out of being like David against Goliath or something. And they can right. never imagine that they could wield power. Well, fine. But the truth is that we need to take power. The good guys need to take power. We need more power, not less power. And we need yeah. to be smart and strategic about when we advance what ideas at what time and Figure out how we can do the, the and, and I learned this in AIDS, the inside-outside strategy. So you need people on the inside, meaning elected officials who are like Karen Bass or Sheila Kuehl or, you know, Maria Elena Durazo in the state Senate. I mean, people who, who come out of movements and who understand uh, that we want to change. There's no point in having power if you're not going to redistribute it and try to fight against the inequities that riddle our system. But you can't do it by yourself. You need the movement on the outside. So Mm -hmm. I always use this example. I mean, people, you know, the most recent election, criminal justice reform had a good day in Los Angeles. I mean, not only did we elect a reform district attorney, which was huge, it was huge to unseat the incumbent DA, but we passed Measure J by 58%, which, you know, redistributes some money from, takes it from the carceral system, I learned a new word, from the incarceration system, Ah. uh, and puts it into alternatives to incarceration, particularly targeting the community. All those decades of building jails and prisons, right? We, We have built this incredible infrastructure of prisons. We have not built addiction recovery centers and mental health community centers. So there's, we have a lot of catch up to do. It's not easy and it's going to take time to do it, but it's 
a beginning. And, and it could never have happened if you hadn't had 25 years of organizing. I mean, Karen Bass started Community Coalition in 1990, and right. they're one of the key groups. But there's lots of other groups that have risen up that are community-based that work on justice reform. And Sheila Kuehl and progressive supervisors on the inside and United Way at the table. So a coalition across sort of mainstream, more centrist organizations with grassroots progressive groups on the outside, uh, really a social movement. Black Lives Matter, being in the streets, really how ha- Black Lives Matter was formed in 2013. So they've been around for a while. But so you had you had a lot of people, you had growing organizing to build the public will on the outside but you had the progressive electeds on the inside. If you hadn't had Sheila Kuehl and Mark Riley Thomas and you know Hilda Solis on the inside, it wouldn't have happened. So you need both. And, and there is this tendency in social movements to want to be pure, you know, like no matter what we want single payer or no matter what we want, whatever, pick your issue, $15 living wage or I mean, a minimum wage or whatever the issue is. And it's just, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen overnight. None of it happens overnight. But you need strategy. You need to build the energy on the outside, the movement to organize. You need to organize on the outside, and you need the progressive policymakers on the inside. Yeah, that's a great point. I loved your working from the margins analogy, too, because that really also, I think, the always thinking of yourself as David against Goliath really is a self-fulfilling prophecy too. Um, You know, we're we're never going to be able to own our power to make the kind of progressive change that you're talking about if we, if we don't step into it. So I'll tell you what I think the great challenge is for the quote resistance um, right now. It's the 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump. We have a massive number of people in this country who are detached from reality as best as I can tell. It's not just that they're racists who live in rural areas, but they there is a scary amount of people. So we have got to be thinking about how do we organize for the long term? How do we build coalitions that are meaningful I mean, what is the strategy? We are going to need a lot of thinking and planning. This is really different than get. We got rid of Trump. We got rid of the bad guy. Yeah. But we have not dealt with the underlying issues that gave rise to him. Right. And that's our task ahead. I want to ask you, first of all, you've been really at the forefront your entire career fighting for LBGTQ rights. Pete Buttigieg was just announced as Biden's pick for Secretary of Transportation, making him (laughs) – surprise, surprise, right? Yeah, making him the first openly gay cabinet member, which surprised me. I I was surprised that hadn't happened sooner. What does that mean to you? Well, I mean, I'm a little surprised it hasn't happened sooner too. Um, You know, I organized the first meeting of gay leaders with a sitting president with um, Bill Clinton in April of 93 in the Oval Office. It was the first time there had been meetings in the White House, but there had never been a meeting with a sitting president in the Oval Office. Hmm. And that was in 93. And, you know, I think about how far we've come since then. Um, and it's pretty astonishing. I mean, that that was 93. So that was before Don't Ask, Don't Tell. 
Right. That was before Defense of Marriage Act. And a lot of Democrats supported those two policies, Um, you know, codifying the closet and being against marriage equality. It took a long struggle. I mean, it took a struggle. It was not as long as it could have been. But um, so, I mean, I think it's great. I think it's a sign of the times. He earned it, boy. I mean, he did really well. His gift is being able to talk to middle of the road and frightened conservatives. And in a language that they understand, he's a veteran. He's a middle class, you know, Midwest guy. Um, So it's interesting that he's at transportation and not the VA, which is where I thought he was going to land. But Hmm. um, whatever, you know, he's (laughs) He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's going to do great anywhere. (laughs) But, you know, we can't. It's like with Clinton. We can't rest by just knowing that we have one representative of a gay white man, you know, in power. It's just a sign we've earned it. That's the way I feel. It's the way I felt actually when I met in the Oval Office with President Clinton. It's kind of like, we've earned this. He's doing his job. We've earned it. Yeah. And um, so I think Pete Buttigieg is, you know, very competent and he's going to do great and he'll do great by the community. Um, And now what are we going to do to stop the murder of black trans women? Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, we have one more question that we always wrap up with. What gives you the most hope for the future? Those kids. I mean, honestly, you know, Gloria Steinem talks about lighting the next light, not passing the baton, but lighting the light of the generation coming up. And I want to tell you, I could, uh, I'm getting, I'm 70 and I'm an elder at this point. (laughs) And I love the young folks who are coming up. I think they, I mean, it's only 50, they only voted three, 53% in the elections. Like we need another 25% of them to vote, but it's 25% better than it was two election cycles ago. So, you know, there's progress in the right direction. I think we're doing the right things. But to me, it's really about the youth, the kids that were, I mean, I call them kids. It's not meant to be ageist. It's just, I feel like they're my children or grandchildren at this point, political grandchildren. And I feel like that they're, they're great on LGBT stuff. They're great on government. They understand the need for government. I mean, government is the major instrument of redistribution. We would not have an American dream without public education, without help for people who need it, without the safety net. And the right wing wants to cut taxes for the rich so that they can destroy the infrastructure of government. They want small government and they want to lionize the private sector so that they can destroy the American dream. And I'm a big believer as, you know, President Obama is. I'm a big believer in towards a perfect, a more perfect union. Liberty and justice for all. That's that's what keeps me going. I think this country is an idea. It's never realized it yet. But those kids, I mean, I'll be able to rest easy. I'll, I'll you know, I'll be able to retire at some point because they are <laughs> fighting so hard. 
Well, don't retire yet because we still need you. You're doing amazing work, and we're very, very grateful for all the work you've done and for your time here. Thank you so much, Tori Osborne, for this conversation. Thank you, Steve. for joining us and for stepping up to take action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Tweet to us. I'm at Blues Boy Steve and Mariah is at Mariah underscore Craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share us on social media. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And don't forget to sign up to volunteer in Georgia while you're there. That's right. We really appreciate you being here with us so much. And we'll be back with some more next Wednesday. See you then. Calling all families. Discovery Plus has thousands of shows that will bring everyone together. Stream exclusive originals plus a huge collection of family favorites, all for just $4.99. Discovery Plus is the streaming home for the whole family, plus so much more. Start your free trial.